if you want to address the counterfeit, you've got to really know the genuine article. So a real commitment to biblical truth related to some of those key issues. Welcome to Biblical Counseling in Action. I'm Steve Byers, and this is a podcast that addresses questions like, how do these principles penetrate every facet of local church ministry? What does it look like when biblical counseling starts to impact the youth ministry, or our ladies' Bible studies, or our men's ministries, or the way leaders function together, or the way decisions are made in the church? And what does it look like in the lives of everyday church members who have been trained, or maybe who have been counseled, but now they're continuing to live out these principles in everyday life? That's what this podcast is all about. Welcome back to Biblical Counseling in Action. Today we're joined by Pastor Chris Moles. Chris is a, a dear friend of mine and of many here on our staff, and we're so very, very thankful for him. He serves as a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And Chris, I'm just so thankful for your ministry, thankful for your life, thankful that you've been willing to work in this particular space and, and taught so many of us in the biblical counseling movement so much already. And I just want to thank you for taking the time just to talk with us on this podcast today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And, you know, part of God's grace and journey to be in this work was Faith Church and mm. Faith Seminary and how he just providentially just melded everything together so that we have a DV focus in biblical counseling in large part because of our partnership. So I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be anywhere, but especially thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting how time passes, because I have trouble even thinking about you as a student in our seminary or even involved in any kind of training, because God has blessed your ministry and used you in teaching in so many ways. But it is interesting, isn't it, how our lives and ministries intersect in all sorts of ways, and sometimes we're teaching, sometimes we're learning, and that's just part of the joy of being part of the body of Christ. Yeah, it's a real privilege to partner with with you guys and always to get a chance to teach alongside. Sometimes it freaks me out a little because I always think of myself as that student, huh. right? So you might forget sometimes, but I'm always present and cognizant that like I'm just a kid, you yeah. know, even though I'm in my 40s. Well, and both of us were impacted by Dr. Bob Smith. Absolutely. And one of the things I always loved about Doc Smith was he was just a learner. Absolutely. And even you know, in his 70s and 80s, it was always so very humbling to me because he would attend church and he would make it a point after church to thank me for the sermon. And I would think, I know there's not one thing I said in that sermon that Doc Smith doesn't know and probably taught me. And yet he was just constantly a learner. And I think that that has set hopefully many of us up to say, you know, biblical counseling is the kind of ministry that the Bible's a much bigger book than us, and so we're always going to be learning all of our days. Absolutely. And for me, you know, I remember the first time Doc called me for advice. I was still a student here, and he called me to work a case. Wow. And it was so humbling, and it just was one of those life lessons of being a learner. And at that point, I was one of Doc's last supervisees for ACBC. Oh, really? Yeah, and for him to call and workshop cases that he had here at faith and trusting me with that, like it was really humbling, but it, it taught me a great deal about understanding our role and the role we play on the team, hmm. that none of yeah. us are above anybody else yep. and we're interdependent as we're prayerfully dependent on the Lord. 
Yeah, you know, Doc Smith's dear friend, Bill Good, my predecessor and mentor, the last day of his life, he had just been out at a Bible college in Iowa teaching biblical counseling. Got back late that night on Friday. We had a men's meeting, a prayer breakfast kind of a thing on Saturday morning. And I told him, you know, that's way too early. Don't feel like you need to be there. And of course, he wanted to be there, and he was. But then he had asked me, hey, could we get some time after that? And so we did, and he wanted to ask me some questions about NANC, the organization he was the executive director of, and he was asking me for advice. And, and I, why would you want or value anything that I would have to say about anything? But sure enough, that's, he was asking me questions, asking me advice, and then we went our separate ways, and that afternoon I received a phone call that he had died and was in heaven. And it's always impacted, just like you said about Doc Smith calling you for advice about a case, Pastor Gu, that was the last conversation that we had, and I want to die that way too. I want to be the kind of person who's constantly learning. Hey, Chris, can you tell us a little bit just about the ministry that God's given you? Well, sure. So I'm a pastor, first and foremost. I've been in pastoral ministry since 1999, back in my home state of West Virginia. So I was born and raised in West Virginia, spent some time at Cedarville, getting my undergrad, and have been serving in ministry since back home. Biblical counseling same amount of time. I was introduced to biblical counseling through an internship at Wheelersburg Baptist. Uh, mm. Brad Brandt and Daryl Schrock at the time introduced me to the concepts, and it changed the way I did ministry. And so I've been engaged in biblical counseling since that time. So did you do an internship with Brad? I did, yeah. You know, I never made that connection, because mm-hmm. Brad's one of our ACBC board members and yeah. just a dear man. Wonderful man. I did. You know, it... I realize you might say, I told you that 14 times, but that never lodged in my brain that Brad is the one who had that kind of an impact on you. introduced me to counseling. I actually had to go through counseling at the church, observe counseling. I think maybe he was doing his fellow hours, perhaps at that time in, in 99. And it just, again, changed everything about my ministry. Functioning in a small state, in a small town, often a lot of us are bivocational or we're looking for other opportunities to minister not necessarily having a lot of resources, I found myself in criminal corrections early on, not a criminal justice major, not even theologically bent towards working with or for the state, but they needed an educator in juvenile crime and a faith-based counselor. They wanted a faith-based counselor, so I joined a board, and that led eventually to being a teacher in our day reporting center with adults. I taught life skills and parenting classes. And And they were happy with you to do that from a faith-based perspective? Absolutely. They could use anybody. They needed anybody. And I happened to be that anybody. You qualified. Well, funny, they saw my resume counseling credentials. They didn't know what NANC was, and I wasn't (laughs) eager to tell them. So it all worked out. And I think something I learned from Cider Hills Camp when I was working with Brad was to do your work well. And I think I did good work, Hmm. and they've kept me around. And so about 17 years ago, I stepped into a role as a co-facilitator for batterer intervention. Didn't know anything about it. I just knew I needed some cash. But the Lord has just really used that in my life now for 17 years to shape me, I think, into a better husband and a better pastor. And around 2008, when I came to Faith Seminary, we were having these discussions about domestic violence. My experiences, and I was conversing with you and Rob and Stuart Scott and some others, and it became just very imperative that we needed to write. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever told you this. This is a reminiscing podcast. Welcome to <laughs> Reflections with Steve and Chris. But I had never even thought of writing. Like, it seems so far outside of my 
ability. Hmm. In our very first class at the seminary, you were you gave us permission. You actually said we have to be contributors, and you told that class that you expected us to write and hmm. to produce. And that was the first time I really felt like I had permission to try that. That's fascinating. And then Stuart Scott was the one who read my thesis for the seminary, my master's thesis, and sent that off to the publisher. Hmm. And that was how the ball got rolling to write the book. And so all of that culmination of doing that work, God really drew me into that work. It was very secular work, very different, somewhat adverse to Christians, which Hmm. was interesting culture to walk in. And then to come into biblical counseling at MABC and begin to wed what I was learning through observation and experience with the men with what I knew the Bible had to say about transformation, Hmm. we really found ourselves, again, by God's grace, striking a chord that maybe we had not struck as well Mm -hmm. in biblical counseling. Yep. Well, and you know, Jay Adams 50 years ago made it very, very clear. He's laying things out, but there's so much that needs to be developed, so much that needs to be expanded. And David Paulison, who was the thought leader of the biblical counseling movement, in my view, and many for decades, said exactly the same thing. I mean, praise God for what we have. Praise God for what has been written and taught by godly women and men. But we, there are just so many pieces that have to be developed. And you're right, I do give that speech to our MABC students that I hope God will use them in leadership positions and will use them to write. I've actually made that comment this week. We're at the Biblical Counseling mm-hmm. Training Conference, and I've said that to people in online Q&As. I just really, and not just women and men from the U.S., but women and men around the world who will write in their particular language and in their particular culture. We're really in our infancy. So praise God that you took that up, and God's blessed in such incredible ways. For whatever reason, it was incredibly meaningful to me, coming from such a small place, and sometimes you feel a little overlooked, like Mm -hmm. you're kind of laboring in vain. And to just have anybody seemingly believe in you enough or encourage you to take that step. That was really meaningful for me. So I don't know that the heart of domestic abuse, the book, or the subsequent resources would be where they are if you guys had not really gotten behind me and made some shifts even in the way we did the seminary to give me permission and the ability to write. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder about someone who might be listening to this podcast who is a faithful pastor, maybe in a smaller town, in a smaller church, but God has been teaching him truths through his study of the Word and teaching him through his ministry to his congregation who would listen to this and say, you know what, maybe there is something that I ought to put forward for publication. And the answer is absolutely got to try. Or some godly woman who has been teaching Bible studies or doing counseling in her neck of the woods, but has thought, well, but, you know, I'm not a big this or that. And, you know, Scripture's so clear. Don't despise the small things. I don't think there is anything small in God's eyes. And, you know, whenever I'm traveling, especially when I'm going east and west and when I'm driving on some kind of a state highway, you just come after town after town after town that that are just small towns, Mm -hmm. and and you just hope and pray there's a faithful Bible-believing church there. But like you said, probably a bivocational pastor who's committed to ministry but also has to do additional work. But if that man or woman is listening to this and thinking, does what I do matter and could it be useful to others? The answer here is absolutely. absolutely. 
Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that piece of the puzzle. So let's talk specifically about just the domestic abuse piece. Can you talk to us some about just what you see as the kind of the state of the training? Where do we stand in terms of where biblical counseling is with our, our teaching, and then where are we going? Yeah, so, you know, when I first started researching back in around 2008, 2009 here at the seminary, I've said this many times in some of the lectures that I do and talks that I do, I had everything. I had found everything that had ever been written hmm. from a Christian perspective, not just conservative or biblical counseling, but anybody. And it all fit in a single cardboard file folder box. Hmm. There just wasn't much. Yep. And some of our friends who were attempting to address the problem didn't really have the theological framework mm-hmm. to address heart change. They weren't mm-hmm. coming at it from a, a transformational perspective. So there wasn't a lot of hope in the literature either. And it's not like it's a new topic. I think you even said this at the Counseling Coalition meetings a few years ago, that biblical counseling has been speaking to this problem for years. I think what's different now in a positive way is case wisdom. I think we have developed over time a much richer volume of case wisdom. And I don't mean that at all in a negative to say that we weren't well equipped. I think for many of us, we were dialoguing based on one case, or Mm -hmm. I dealt with this at my church, or I had this with my family. But what I think God has brought us, and I'm proud to be part of that, but then there's other really talented people also gaining this, is we've got now thousands of hours contained within individuals who've been doing this work. I've literally done thousands of hours of work in this field with people. And Darby Strickland has has conducted hours upon hours, Sidney Millage, and others that are within our framework, within the tribe, the greater biblical counseling tribe, that have collected case wisdom that we just didn't have before. Hmm. And we're able to see the intersectionalities of those cases, the things that are common, the things that are unique. And to me, that seems to be the big win for biblical counseling, is we've developed a level of, for lack of a better word, expertise in the practical theology of interacting with people trapped in these relationships, which is something I don't think we had before, Hmm. if that makes sense. I think that's where we're at. And so the resources now... No longer do we have just the single foul box. Right. I mean, you've just got a plethora of resources, even just with the topic of abuse in general. Just Faith Bible Seminary, if you look at the table here at the conference, our graduates have mm-hmm. produced three of them, Yeah, three of the something? primary pieces that we use today. So how can a church have a culture where if abuse is occurring, that there's a, a way for that to be exposed and addressed in a meaningful fashion? So I think if you want to address the counterfeit, you've got to really know the genuine article. So a real commitment to biblical truth related to some of those key issues, marriage would be one, not really settling for a cheap, and I hate to say it that way, but I think sometimes we do. We really like the institution of marriage, but we haven't really fleshed out the richness of a biblical marriage. Interesting. Sometimes the institution of marriage has become, I think, our Sabbath, that it's made for man, right? So I think that's something that should be addressed. The theology of power, I think, is something that we could stand a real good wrestling with. I think if we understand who Jesus is, we talked about this in track two today, actually, that he calls us in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 to power under, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the way the world uses power, which is to dominate. And we have so many husbands who claim the name of Christ who really value the moniker of headship without practically applying the principles of servant leadership. And mm. so, you know, the love of Ephesians 5.22 without the framework of Ephesians 5.1, you know, be imitators of God there, mm-hmm. you know, as dearly loved children. 
having that type of passion from the pulpit in the pew and among the people that says, we really value the genuine article, power that is under control and used to serve people and used to help people. And we oppose power that's used to demean. Marriage that is full of reciprocity and mutuality. Why? Because of servant leadership and biblical submission, not some weird hierarchy of power, but of responsibility. I think if we would be passionate about the genuine article, that's a good first step. And that happens from the pulpit and in the culture. And to me, that's been one of the big rubs is culturally sometimes abuses, it's easy to hide Mm -hmm. when it shouldn't be. And I think if we're really committed to biblical truth, it makes it more difficult to hide. That's a little generic in general, but I think that's the first thing I would throw out there. Hmm. How does a person make a determination of, are we talking about garden variety challenges, trials, imperfections that are part of every marriage? Where does it cross the line into what we would call abuse that needs to be flagged, that needs to be addressed, and if there's not repentance and change, then it needs to become more of an official issue in the church. Can you help us with even just definitions? You know, I can try. Defining the term is hard. Abuse is kind of a construct or an umbrella term that encompasses an understanding of power used to control, power used to coerce. So the interesting thing is something innocent or something, an eccentricity or a habit that normally would be innocent in a marriage could become abusive in the hands of somebody who's used physical force or who uses threats. And so in the counseling room, it can be a really tricky avenue because you can present with a common marriage problem. And if you do your work well and pull the rope, I call it pulling the rope, you eventually come to this conclusion where it's like, wait, this is imbalanced. And I think that's the first thing you're looking for is imbalance, an imbalance of power where one person seems to be making all the decisions with little to no input. A lack of agency is another, where an individual doesn't have the freedom that they should. Obviously, in Christ, we actually should excel at freedom, but in some marriages, it's so confining and restrictive that that warning light begins to go off in the counselor's head. It's like, she should really have more agency than this. This seems really imbalanced. And then anytime you uncover things that are blatant, threats are big, coercion, manipulation, aspects in which another person finds themselves in fear or under threat, then that you pull the rope even more to find those elements of domination that you'll see in abuse cases. I wish I had a formula. I'd love to give every biblical counselor a formula. But if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse because they're all distinctly different. Mm -hmm. And so what you're listening for, I think, is a warped behavior or series of behavior along with a warped perception, how the abuser sees the world, themselves, others, and God, and how that informs their practical theology, leaving their partner in danger, fearful for their safety, threatened with a lack of freedom or a lack of sanity in some ways, because crazy-making is a very popular way to keep your partner unsettled. So I don't think there's one, like, here's the thread you pull. I think it comes back again to that counterfeit versus the genuine. As a biblical counselor continues to promote godly marriage based upon what we know from the Scriptures, those red lights begin to ding, ding, Mm -hmm. ding, as you hear more of that power dynamic that begins to play out in your conversations. Well, and is there a sense in which... If it's predominantly a woman, but it could be. Yeah, it could be the other way. But let's just for sake of argument say that we're talking about a woman who's in a marriage and she's not. Is this 
abuse that needs to be flagged or is this garden variety challenges that come in a sin-cursed world? Is there a sense in which at some point it's best to get the leaders of the church involved to adjudicate that? You need someone else to help you see clearly what actually is going on here. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think you want to be wise in how you do it. So I always defer to the victim's safety. Mm -hmm. I usually don't, I try not to run ahead. I'll use her in this case, as you did. I try not to run ahead of her because she already has one person in her life controlling her. She doesn't need another. Mm -hmm. She needs somebody empowering and resourcing. So I, I really recommend taking your time, resourcing them. And some of the resources, if there's been physical violence or sexual violence, is to connect them to social services or law enforcement. Most states are not mandated reporters for domestic abuse, believe it or not, because you can put the victim in more danger by reporting, especially without her consent or without a safety plan, because hmm. the police may investigate, find nothing, and then they leave. Right. right. So really know your local reporting laws. I think mm-hmm. there's a couple states that mandate it, but for most states, you're not. So make sure you know your local reporting laws. But I try to resource them if it's criminal or civil. Here's the people you can contact. And if not, because not all domestic violence is criminal, but it's all utterly sinful, hmm. it may be a role specifically right. for the church. And so I would want the church to be as involved as soon as possible, not necessarily to investigate, but to your point, to adjudicate, to work with both parties toward a parallel tracks of care. And I usually tell folks I'm going to be dealing with her on care, comfort, healing, understanding her place, her responses. I want to be dealing with him on confrontational ministry, addressing the heart and safety matters as well. One of the issues we run into sometimes with church discipline is not knowing when to start and not knowing when to end. Yep. I'll often have churches call me, and I'm not exaggerating. This is, and I'm I'm not saying this in a negative way either. It's just the way the world we live in. I'll have churches call and say, "We've been working this case for about a year. It's abusive. We've tried everything. We're going to start church discipline." I'm like, "Well, did she tell him to stop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is she a believer? Like, I feel like you're at the end of church discipline. I feel like you guys have been. I feel like she's confronted him. You've been addressing it as a leadership, and now it's time to take it to the church. I don't want, I don't think we should start it over mm-hmm. <laughs> with her. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, too, I think sometimes is we rush reconciliation in church discipline, mm-hmm. and we say, well, he confessed, but that may not right. mean she's safe. Right. So it's really a long, drawn-out process. I think the leaders should be involved, probably with a point person, that's willing to do a long, hard work. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes with us as pastors, we love the, okay, it's been six weeks, i got to move yeah. on to something else. Right. And so I think having a point person who's going to say, okay, I'm going to do the long, hard work, because this is going to be more than six weeks worth of counseling, care, discipline, restoration. And if you remain obstinate, you know, church discipline or excommunication. Yeah. And and we should be clear for anybody listening that we're not discussing a situation where there's clear likelihood of physical abuse In, in a situation where there's any genuine concern for a wife's safety or for children's safety, we're going to say get out or get the law enforcement involved and get him out. But we would never put a woman or a child in a situation where there was even a likelihood of any kind of physical harm coming so I to tell, them. So I tell folks that if you suspect that she's in imminent danger or the children are in imminent danger, or there's a likelihood of lethality, and that's why having good training, uh, thorough training is important, knowing things like Previous accounts of strangulation would be a high risk of lethality. The presence of weapons would increase your risk of homicide. Animal abuse would be one, and then threats of homicide or suicide if they've threatened to kill themselves. 
So just looking for those markers, too, while you're listening and talking. If you feel like someone's in imminent danger, that's where that's my line. I would say I'm not really comfortable sending you home. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather work out an arrangement for him to get out of the house would be what I would want the abuser to leave. Maybe that involves law enforcement, maybe a civil order of protection, maybe it's a church-based partnership, or if your church has some kind of safe house, that would be a good policy to have. Yeah, and you know, the church is the ideal entity to try to serve persons both who are being abused or who are abusing. Absolutely. But boy, quote unquote, the devil is in the details, knowing exactly who to believe, knowing exactly what we want to represent Jesus. We mm-hmm. want to serve people who are struggling. But wow, it is hard when you're actually working through a situation like that to know exactly what's best. I remember one individual I was working with, he was very, and most of the guys I work with are upset. I'm the one guy, no one's happy to see me. And I recall him just being very, very disappointed that he was there, very upset that he was there, as if he was being accused of something he didn't do. And he was very adamant. And I think finally I said something to the degree of, listen, for just a moment, if you were in my shoes, would you want me to simply give in to what you're saying, or would you want me to work as hard as I could to protect your wife? Hmm. And it was like, well, you got a point there, Pastor Chris. I was like, well, let's work hard together, because maybe you've got some blind spots that you're not willing to admit. Let's do the hard work for the sake of your wife's safety, no matter what you believe. I said, if you believe you're 10% responsible, then let's wrestle that 100% to the ground. Yeah, that's really good. And it's interesting even that you told it that way, because... Yes, we want to serve the person who has been abused. We want to prioritize safety and care. But that doesn't mean we have nothing to say or to do with the person who has been abusing. Absolutely. I say the most effective means, because violence against women is such a high, really the the highest rate of violence is against women, intimate partners. I say the most effective means of addressing violence against women is to address the hearts of men. Mm, Yeah. If we help a victim, we've helped that victim, which is wonderful work. And I think I'm just so thankful for shelters and community agencies and godly biblical counselors who engage in victim care. But if we provide gospel truth to a perpetrator that he either accepts and repents or he rejects, then we know we have something we can do with him. Hmm. We have hope that maybe he won't harm again. Hmm. So I do think the church is a unique agency, especially when you consider Galatians 6, to engage in confrontational ministry that's yeah. winsome and gentle, calls sinners to repentance, and then responds if they choose not to. So where do you see this going? I mean, where's your ministry going? Where's the biblical counseling as it relates to abuse development going? What's next? So I think, you know, in all fairness, I, I think we could really benefit from a little more of Doc Smith hmm. in our lives. I think that's the one area that I think biblical counseling, we can grow a little bit more is to be learners to listen. This is a difficult topic. And, oh, it is. Uh, people tend to pick sides hmm. rather than... And I tell clients this, counselees this, you know, I'll say, I do pick a side. I'm not picking her side or his side. I'm picking God's side. Mm-hmm. Now, it just so happens God opposes the proud. So, I mean, if you're an abusive person, there's going to be a price to pay, but I want to really line up on his side. And I think sometimes we perceive cases like this either what would it feel like if I was the abuser or being accused, or what would it feel like if I was the one being victimized? Hmm. And I'd much rather just say, let's back up for just a second, and how does God view the mistreatment of the vulnerable? Hmm. And let's respond with that type of heart and to do it in a winsome way. So I think if we could maybe just take a breath and have a little Doc Smith in us and say, I want to be a learner, I want to listen. The other thing I think is we're needed more than ever. I think 
Biblical counselors are uniquely positioned to address this problem like no one else in our culture. Mm. And this might seem like an exaggeration, but the way the culture is going, I wonder if social services and many of the agencies who've traditionally done this work will be able to do this work. We're having difficulty not just serving women, but determining who is a woman. And some of our social service agencies are really struggling with how to meet the needs of individuals who are actually suffering and remain within the the milieu of the way the culture is going, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I think we become so politicized in our responses that real victims, not not saying that folks outside of that standard of, of women are not real victims, but the majority of victims can get overshadowed by the politically acceptable victim yeah, or sure. the culture of victimhood that kind of takes away. So I think the church, having truth on our side, having the Word of God, we're uniquely positioned, and biblical counselors even more so. I used to say that abuser work, biblical counseling with abusers, is totally our wheelhouse. It's like traditional nuthetic counseling. I yep. mean, it's just like a nuthetic candy store. You're huh. just always <laughs> doing that work of admonishing and warning and confronting in a winsome way, and I think we would be valuable assets if we can maybe calm down a little bit, take a breath, and learn. Yeah. So let's say somebody's listening to this. I know there's going to be many who would say, hey, I'd like to learn more about Chris's ministry. I'd like to learn more about his resources. I'd like to just get greater access to the wisdom that God has given him. How can they find out more about what you're doing? You can find out more about me at chrismoles.org. Obviously, that's my website. You'll find there the PeaceWorks podcast, the world's worst podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, you'll find information about the podcast, uh, my membership site, PeaceWorks University, along with some other things that we do in training and helping folks uh, address domestic violence from a gospel-centered perspective. Well, hey, I want you to know that I praise the Lord for you. I praise the Lord for your family, the way He's put you together. I praise the Lord for the place that He's called you to serve and the way you've been such a good steward of this material in a way that's been a blessing to all of us. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, brother. It's been my pleasure. You can check out more about our ministry at faithlafayette.org. Or if you're interested in receiving biblical counseling training, go to faithlafayette.org conferences. You can find these presentations wherever you normally access your podcasts. And you could really help us just to get the word out by telling your friends on social media that these presentations are going to be available. Our hope and our prayer is that this podcast honors the Lord and is a blessing to you.